Matthew, the fourth chapter, verse 18, and we'll be reading there first, but I will also read out of Mark, the 16th chapter, and the seventh verse. Matthew 4, verse 18, reading down through verse 22. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Mark 16, verse 7. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him as he said unto you. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter. Praise God. I want to preach to you just for a little while. Mended nets and second chances. Mended nets and second chances. God, we thank you, Lord, for your presence in this house. I plead your blood, Lord God, that your spirit would prevail. Lord, let there be an anointing that would fall upon me as your servant and upon every ear that heareth today. God, I pray, Lord, that there would be an unction of the Holy Ghost that would flow throughout this congregation. Let your perfect will be done. Open up our hearts. Make them pliable, Lord Jesus, for the work of the Spirit. And we give you glory and praise and honor, for you are truly worthy of that. And everybody say, in Jesus' name, praise God. Can we one more time lift up our voice to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? He is worthy of our praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. You can be seated. God bless you. Anytime that you deal with humanity and the mentality of this world, second chances are not a commonality. Just ask the little boy who comes home with the F on his report card. Doesn't get to pass go, doesn't get to collect $200. He gets to go back and take that grade all over again. Or how about the basketball star that misses the shot at the buzzer and loses the championship, or as recently as last year, the three-year-old Colt named I'll Have Another, highly favored to win the Belmont Stakes, was scratched due to a tendon injury and forced to retire early, shocking the horse racing world and relinquishing its shot to become the first triple crown winner since 1978. He didn't have a chance to have another. The good news to you today is that there is a God that doesn't share the same mindset of his creation. The mere fact that we worship a Savior today named Jesus Christ is evidence enough of that. Adam and Eve did not breathe their last breath 
that fateful day when they partook of the fruit, they did not die in their sins with their mistake being the final event of their life. No, God in his infinite wisdom, his mercy, and his grace provided a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to cover them and give them an opportunity for a future. They did not have to wear their fig leaf clothes forever. Nathaniel Hawthorne in his 18 fictional novel, The Scarlet Letter, depicts how the world views your mistakes with ridicule, humiliation, with disgrace. The Hester Prins of this world will always wear a scarlet letter as far as they're concerned. But that brings me to my first point today, and that is Jesus Christ is a God of second chances. Hallelujah. In Luke, the fourth chapter, the 18th and the 19th verse, Jesus Christ provided an answer to the pharisaical religious spirits of the world. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. There was nothing about his message that was to the righteous. Matter of fact, he sent that message very clearly that I have not come for the righteous, but I have come for the sinner. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. I've come for the disenfranchised. I've come for the hurting. I've come for the captive. I've come to set them free. And not only to set them free, but to heal them and restore them to the place of their rightful position on a pathway where I have designed a future and a place and a habitation where they can do my calling and be worth my presence. Hallelujah. He illustrated his purpose further. The writer John wrote about it in his gospel. This time a much different story than Nathaniel Hawthorne's. This time the story is cast in John the 8th chapter. I won't take the time to read it, but many of you know the story that I'm referring to. A woman that is cast down at the feet of Jesus by a group of vindictive, self-righteous, agenda-driven Pharisees. They say she's guilty of adultery in the very act, but no one can find the guy. Where is he? She's just a pawn in the hands of sinister spirits. But Jesus responds by identifying at least three things. First of all, he identified that there was none without sin. He said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. In Romans, the third chapter, the 10th verse and the 23rd verse, Paul wrote to the church of Rome, there is none righteous, no, not one, and for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Lord understands 
of his creation. He is not surprised by our frailty. He is not surprised by our flaws. He did not wake up today, supposedly, and look at our lives and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe that situation. I can't believe that's going on. Oh no, God is not surprised by our flesh. He created our flesh. He knows about our flesh, but he has also made a provision for our flesh. So I've got good news for the church. There is a message that you can live by and enjoy today that you do not have to be perfect. I hope that I don't have to qualify that and make you think that sin is okay. Sin is not okay, but you don't have to get up in the morning and be filled with with despair and be filled with all kinds of issues because you're a flawless person or a a person filled with flaws. You don't have to worry because of your mistakes. There was a God who died on the cross for your mistakes and he's come to send a message to someone in the house today that it is okay to come before his throne room of grace and let him cover you from your sins. Hallelujah. He identified that there is none without sin. But he also identified that he was not the one that came to condemn. Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned me? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Hallelujah. Neither do I condemn thee. I have to imagine, Brother Hughes, this woman doesn't have a clue what the motive is behind these men. They weren't after her at all. They were trying to trick up Jesus, just a pawn, just a nobody as far as they're concerned. And she lays at the feet of Jesus, thinking that her disgrace is going to be the final act that defines her. In that day, they would gather around in the city square, and there would be friends, and there would be family members. There would be the children. There would be the parents. And they were all there to look on the scene that was getting ready to transpire. I can imagine how she must have felt to look out into that that congregation of people and see possibly her children standing there looking on. Possibly she looked into her mother's eyes and saw the anguish. Possibly her father looked at her with tears streaming down her face, knowing what was getting ready to take place. Her friends looked at her and cast their look in in a very vindictive way. I can't believe you. I can't believe what you've done. I can't believe what you have become. Look what you have done. You've been a disgrace. And they are looking at her, and she's gathering all of this in, thinking that she's about ready to die. And then a master says, I've not come to condemn you. 
Hallelujah. And he sends a message to the rest of the world. You that are without sin, why don't you first cast a stone at her? Well, the the assembly immediately parts their way and they make their way to their home. And this trembling lady that thought her future was over stood by herself at the feet of Jesus. And then he says a few words that give her hope for a chance for a future. He looks at her and he says, go and sin no more. How that must have felt to wait for the rocks to fall. How that must have felt to think that she was going to die in her dilemma. How she must have felt to think that in her disgrace, everybody, her children, her family, all of her friends would see her being being cast upon with rocks, dying, breathing her last breath with her miserable mistake, being viewed about everybody, but now she hears these words go and sin no more there is a future in God ladies and gentlemen it doesn't matter where you came from it doesn't matter what you've done it doesn't matter how many mistakes it doesn't matter your life it doesn't matter the abuse it doesn't matter the carnage there is a God that would like to step to the forefront of your life and say go I've not come to condemn you you have a future in me Can we give the Lord a good hand clap of praise? Hallelujah. You talk about someone who had a new lease on life. Naked, humiliated, thinking she's about to die with everyone knowing her sin. And then she hears the voice of a man who wrote, the book on second chances. I'm talking about a book that's a page turner. You can't put it down once you begin to read it. A book that would be filled with stories like how an Ishmael mistake didn't cancel out an Isaac miracle. You could turn the page and discover a man by the name of Jacob whose name and actions mean deceiver and supplanter. But an encounter with Jehovah produces a change of name and identity. Israel, God prevails. Is there anybody in the house? that desperately wants a change of names. Hallelujah. Wants an opportunity to have a new lease on life. I'll never forget Brother Hughes, my dad sharing a story with me. He was a professional butcher. Lived, worked in that field over 40 plus years. He came in contact with a young man who had been abused as a child. Had all kinds of wounds, all kinds of scars, all kinds of hurts. His daddy was known as a town drunk and he would come home in his drunken stupor and he would beat his children and he would beat that boy's mother. They lived in shambles. They didn't have anything. One day this young man grew up. My dad had the opportunity to train him in that field of butchering meat. They began to talk about the Lord, have an opportunity to share the gospel. That man fell in love. I'll never forget as my dad began to relay the story how much it pricked my heart. 
He said, talk to my dad. My dad's name was Jim. He said, Jim, he said, whenever I started dating my wife now, he said, I got, I got in contact with her family, fell in love with her family. Her parents became my parents. He said, it felt so good to have what everybody else would consider a normal family, something that I was robbed of as a child. And he said, whenever I ask my wife to marry me, he said, I'm going to ask you if you'll do something. And he goes, I know it's peculiar. I know it's strange, but it's important to me. He said, I want to know if you would not take on my name, but if it's okay for me to take on yours. Because you see, I've come in contact with a family that knows how to love. I've come in contact with a family who is respected. And I would like to walk away from all of my past. I would like to get away from all the wounds. I would like to get away from all the scars. So is it okay when we walk down the aisle together that day that I take on your name instead of you take on mine? That beautiful young lady said, absolutely, you can take on my daddy's name. I'm telling you, house, that God wants you to take on his name. There is a name change in the house. You don't have to be guilt-ridden with your past. You may have come from a bitter family. You may have come from a bitter situation. You may have come from a circumstance. You may have done your done deeds yourself that you're not happy about, but I'm telling you that if Jacob can have a name change, you and I can have a name change where God can wash away our past. He can give us a brand new future and he can give us a name from on high that the the world would respect and love. I'm talking about a God of second chances. You could turn the page a few more times and come across a man by the name of Moses, a murderer, a guy who would certainly have been a good candidate for an anger management class. He hits a rock when he's told to speak to it. He slams down the Ten Commandments after God's finger inscribes them. Talking about a man who had problems with his anger. Hallelujah. But I'm talking about a God of second chances. You say, what are you talking about, Brother Milligan? He didn't get to go into the promised land. No, he didn't as a live person like you and I. But I'm told during the transfiguration that there are two that stood next to Jesus Christ on the other side of Jordan. Hallelujah. One is Elijah, but the other is Moses. I'm telling you that he made it across Jordan. He just made it in a better body than the one that he left this world in. I'm talking about a God of second chances. You could turn the book a few more pages. You would come across a man by the name of King David. Certainly he should have been fighting with the rest of the kings instead of taking a midnight stroll on the balcony of his palace. But it is written of him and only him, a man after my own heart, a man in spite of his flaws conquered nations, brought down giants, a man who produced wisdom out of miscue and handed the next generation an era of peace. And then we come to the text that we just read. 
I've often wondered why it was written like that, Brother Hughes. Why would he send the message, go tell the disciples and Peter? Why single him out? I think it's because Jesus understood how bad Peter needed to be reminded that I have not given up on you. I am a God of second chances, Peter. And I knew that if I sent a message, co-tell the disciples that it would also include you. But I wanted to single you out. And I wanted to let you know that I have not forgotten that I gave you the keys to the kingdom to bind whatsoever thou things in earth and in heaven. I've given you an appointment day on the day of Pentecost. And I have not forgotten it. I have seen your bitter tears, Peter. I have seen you realize that you weren't willing to give up on me. And I've come to send you a message today that I am a God of second chances and I am coming again for you. Hallelujah. But in Luke, the fifth chapter, the physician gives us a little bit more insight to the text that we read as we started this message today. I want to take the time to read it in Luke 5, chapter 1. It says, and it come to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake Genesaria and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when they had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answered and said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night. We have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when he had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished at all that were with him at the draught of the fishes that they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. I want to submit to somebody in the house today that you need more than washed nets in order to fulfill God's divine purpose for your life. In Luke, the fifth chapter, Matthew 4 and Mark 1, Peter was busy casting their nets and washing their nets. But never is it written about Peter and Simon as it was about James and John when Jesus walked on the shore that day. James and John was at the feet of their father, and their father, it says, was mending their nets. Somehow through time, James and John understood the necessity to get alone with daddy and say, you know what? We've been catching a lot of fish, dad. We've been doing a lot of great things. 
We got these things all washed. But I've noticed there's a fray here and there's a tear there. Show me how to do that loop again and show me how to sew that and show me how to do that. James and John came to the rescue that day in Peter's life when his nets began to tear and break. I believe it was indicative of Peter's life. It represented a flawed man who liked to open his mouth without thinking, who was always putting his foot in his mouth, who was always saying the wrong things at the wrong time. One time Jesus had to look at him and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. Peter was always getting caught up with his emotions without thinking it through. And his nets that broke that day was indicative of his life. And that's the reason why Jesus gave Peter a second chance. And he also provided him partners who understood the value of mended nets. Too many times we get so caught up with casting our nets. And too many times we realize that as a flawed person, we need our nets washed. We realize we're not perfect. We realize that we're flawed. So we'll come to an altar and we'll say, God, wash me. God, cleanse me. And God, God will wash you and God will cleanse you. But then you walk away and you forget that you need your nets mended as well. You've been hurt. You've been abused. You've been wounded by this world. And you need to get time alone with your daddy and let him mend your nets. He I have to believe that Peter that day, the fish began to take hold. And about halfway into the boat, he begins to see this tear coming down his net. He begins to see them breaking. And I can imagine the anguish. He just didn't do this for a hobby. This was his profession. This is what he did best. This is what he knew how to do. This is what he intended to pass down to his children. This is what had been passed down to him. He should have known how to pay attention to his equipment. But he had gotten so caught up in casting his net and washing his net. He never took the time with his daddy to show him how to have it mended. The Bible says that day that they left everything and they followed Jesus. In his despair, in his humiliation, he left it all there. But somewhere along the line, Brother Hughes, I have to believe through that course of life, he found his way to his daddy's house, and he said, Daddy, you're not going to believe what happened to me the other day. He said, this man showed up on the seashore. I've never met a man like this, Daddy. There's such power. There's such authority. I feel led to follow him, but I had to start following him in my worst humiliation. I failed you, Daddy. 
and I've realized how I failed you, and I want you to show me now how to mend these things. How do I take care of these nets? I feel like that he had to make his way from time to time, every chance that he got, back to his daddy's house when they weren't doing anything. You know why I feel that? Because when Jesus died on a cross, Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. I don't believe it was by an accident. I don't believe it was by mistake. I don't believe it was because it was anything. He he couldn't think of anything else to do. I think he thought, you know what? I think I know a master who knows how to give me second chances. And I have spent time these last three years understanding the art with daddy, how to get my nets mended. So I'm going to go back to the place of my greatest failure, and I'm going to wait for him to come. And sure enough, that day Jesus walks on the seashore. Have you caught any fish? I can almost feel the excitement in Peter as he began to think, this is it. I get a second opportunity. I'm ready this time. I've spent the time mending my nets. I'm ready for this harvest. Well, why don't you cast your net on the other side? And I can imagine as Peter began to cast and the fish began to accumulate and he began to bring them in, he knew the net would stay intact. He knew that everything was going to be okay. God Almighty had provided him an opportunity to right all the wrongs, to fix the past, to give him a brand new future. And he began to have the greatest harvest he had ever had in his life. I'm talking about a God of second chances and a God, if you will allow him, will mend your nets. He will mend your nets. But you have got to make up your mind to spend time with your daddy. I don't know that there was ever a time in my life where I seen this exemplified more than I saw it this day. We had started a missions work in downtown Memphis. And it was to a bunch of alcoholics. The park was filled with all sorts of broken humanity. We had prostitutes that regularly walked through those doors. Alcoholics, homeless people, people that had lost their families, lost everything. Drug addicts, prisoners, inmates, all kinds of issues that would walk into that downtown church. On this day, we held our Bible study on Tuesday night, Brother Hughes. And I'll never forget the man that walked through the door. It wasn't the first time that I met him. Believe it or not, his name was Moses. He was a black man. What I didn't realize is that he had been a prominent pastor, Baptist pastor at one time. A homeless man now. Clothes tattered. Stunk like alcohol. And sweat. And I don't mean to be crude, but I'm going to paint the seed. Urine. He stunk. He lived in the gutter. That was what his life had become. Knew what it was like to have everything. 
knew what it was like to minister to a congregation, knew what it was like to have a precious family. I don't know what happened, mistake, failure, I don't know. But he lost everything. He lost his self-respect. His family turned against him. The church booted him out. All he had was the clothes on his back. And he settled in downtown Memphis. And he walked into the Bible study that day. Waved at him. Hey, Moses. Hey. Because normally he wouldn't stay in a service. Conviction would get way too hot. But we always had refreshments. We had a pot of coffee and cookies there. So he made his way over to the table, got his cup of coffee, and began to eat some of the cookies. And I fully expected him to do as he had normally done, get something to eat, hang around for a few minutes, and make his way back out the door, out onto the streets. This day was different. He come from around the corner. And he came straight up to me. I would have a little podium that would sit right in the front here, just a, a little storefront in downtown Memphis. We were in kind of like the basement area where the windows were like ground view. I mean, you'd look up and you'd just see feet walking by. And that's where we were. I had this little podium, and I was getting ready to start my Bible study and have prayer. I watched him come down the aisle and face me. He said, Brother Milligan, I need help. Tears begin to stream down his face. He said, Pastor, I can't live like this anymore. I've lost everything. I don't have anything to offer. I've got a pretty dark past, Pastor. And I don't know what else to do. And I don't want to live like this anymore. And I can't go back out there again without having some kind of hope. Is there something you can do? I said, Moses, God can help you. I said, if you will lift up your hands, the Bible says that if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I said, Moses, why don't you just lift up your hands and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for my past. And I said, I'm telling you, Moses, if you will do that, God's presence will come in in a moment and he will touch your life. I watched this man lift up his hands, tears streaming down his, his cheeks. I laid my hand on his head and began to pray. And it was like a lightning bolt. God hit him. He fell down to his knees, talking in tongues. As the Holy Ghost gave the utterance, begin to tremble underneath the presence of the Lord. We prayed for him for some time. We got up, big old smile across his face, brother. He's changed man. <laughs> Still had the same clothes, but not the same spirit. Had a smile on his face, a new lease on life. He had heard the master say, go. He looked at me and said, Pastor, 
I'm going to go tell somebody about this. I was like, well, okay, Moses. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> he went out the door. I got into my Bible study. We were living on high. I was like, my Lord, can you believe what just happened? That's awesome. You know, we were having a great time. About that time, about midway through my Bible study, I saw six feet through the window, and one of them is stomping his feet. Well, I'm trying not to get distracted, which is not really hard for me to do. <laughs> I get distracted pretty easily. And so I'm looking out the window, trying to teach my Bible study. And about that time, I just like, time out. I don't know what's going on out there, but I got to find out. And so I walked far enough up to where I could see out the door. And there's two police ladies with Moses. And he's stomping his foot. And about the time I look up there, he sees me. And he walks down the stairs, flings the door open. And he begins to stomp his feet again. And this time I understand what he's saying. He's looking at those police ladies and says, there's something going on down there. There's something going on down there. There's something going on down there. I have to be honest with you, I didn't know what to expect. They walk down those stairs, and when I get nervous, I talk fast. So I went up to the ladies. I said, uh, uh, ma'am, uh, you're not a man, but I'm going to use you. I said, ma'am, Pastor Milligan here. I pastor the downtown church. It's the daughter working at the Pentecostal Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Terry Black, the senior pastor. I said, is everything okay? He said, she looked at me, and she said, you know this man? I said, yeah, I know this man. She said, this is Moses. I said, yes, ma'am, I know him. She said, no, I'm asking you, do you know Moses? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, he's beginning to tell me that something happened down here that totally has changed his life, and I've never seen him act like this. And what happened to him happened down here just a few minutes ago. Well, about the mid part of her sentence, he interrupts her and says, Pastor, lay your hand on her head like you laid on mine. And I thought I was going to jail, Brother Hughes. And I said, ma'am, I don't know if you believe this. I don't really care. But the Holy Ghost got a hold of Moses. You know who he is. He's an alcoholic. He's a bum. He don't have anything to offer. But God interrupted his life just a minute ago and changed him forever. He grabs my hand and begins to pull me over to her. I said, ma'am, is it okay? Can, can I pray for you? All I had to see was one little tear come out of her eye. I began to lay my hands on her head. She began to tremble underneath the power of the Holy Ghost. Tears began to stream down her face. The Holy Ghost began to fall. I'm talking about a man in a moment's notice that gave himself to God and God rehabilitated his life, gave him a second chance, gave him a ministry, gave him a future. I'm talking about a God of second chances that will bend your nets. Woo! Hallelujah! Hallelujah! I don't know who's in the house, 
But I'm telling you, somebody, God, wanted to send a message to you today that it is not over. You don't have to give up on your dreams. You don't have to give up on your future. You don't have to look bad about your life or your past. It doesn't matter what you've done. God died on a cross, and his blood was shed to cover you and to heal you, to mend your brokenness, to heal your life, and to restore you.